Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So you say you want a revolution. Well, don't you know, we all want to save the world. But when we resort to revolutions to do it, things can sometimes turn out pretty ugly. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. I'm your host, Eric, and uh, I'm excited today to be able to talk about a topic that I've been wanting to talk about for a bit. And kind of what's holding me, been holding me back to talk about revolutions throughout history is while I've you know studied these revolutions a lot, I wanted to make sure that I was um, actually being fairly robust in giving people an opportunity to go research a lot of these revolutions for themselves. So what I decided to do was rely on my old favorites, Mike Duncan and Patrick Wyman. And so I'm going to be just generally hand wavy like uh drawing from them mostly duncan and so what i want to encourage everyone to do is if they want to go learn more about any of the individual revolutions that i'm going to be talking about i just want you to go check out duncan's history of rome or revolutions um, or patrick wyman's tides of history i don't work with them although i know them both and like them uh, and so i'm not plugging them per se but uh, they're what i'm drawing from most directly not exclusively but most directly and i think that they're pretty good sources um, of figuring out generally what's going on in each of these revolutions in a pretty fair way. What I want to talk about today is actually drawing um, a bit of a set of, you know, conclusions around how revolutions tend to turn out and why. And the reason I want to do this is that, you know, look, here in the United States and in Western democracies, you know, people bandy around revolutions a lot. I remember, you know, Ron Paul was looking to have a revolution. Trump had his revolution. Reagan had his revolution, blah, 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 Um, at least here in the U.S. And more presciently, two things in the United States in particular. One, we have a revolutionary history. Right. So we have a history where our revolution birthed our nation. And so we in the U.S. tend to have this idea that things tend to work out pretty well when you have yourself a revolution. I mean, as much as it wasn't perfect, in particular due to the slavery issue not being addressed, um, it was otherwise pretty awesome, honestly. You know, especially if you contextualize the time and what people's expectations of, you know, natural rights were and stuff like that. Like it was great. It was beautiful. And it was, you know, very high minded uh, and very clean. And so we don't have a sense that things can turn out badly and that's what i'm going to be talking about a lot 
Um, and the second thing is we've really been working as hard as we can at eroding our liberal institutions, right? And I don't mean liberal like left wing. I mean liberal like liberalism, the uh, political ideology that we love so much. Uh, and that's why you tend to hear the term liberal democracy. You know, liberalism is people have rights and there's a constitution and there are checks and balances and you try to prevent a tyranny in the majority. The opposite of a liberal revolution or a liberal democracy is an illiberal democracy where, yep, you vote for stuff, but... But then whoever's in charge has way too much power concentrated in one place. They can do too many things. They can do bad things to people because they don't have inalienable rights. Um, there are not constitutions. There are not checks and balances. And um, as we erode our institutions here in the United States, part of what we're doing is we're sort of declaring a commitment to ourselves that we're less and less interested in the current system. And a revolution, generally, in the more classic definition, is using violence to replace a system of government, using extra legal means, um, you know, almost always violence, to replace a system of government. So rather than working within the system, you just break the system and, or try to replace the system. The reason, you know, may be obvious, but why is violence so important with this? Well, because the people who run the system are going to try to defend it. And the system tends to have, you know, a significant amount of force behind it. That's how it enforces its will. We call this monopoly of violence, monopoly on violence. The monopoly on violence is a, it's an important, I remember getting in a stupid argument with a bunch of 20-somethings in China way back in the day about it. They're like, oh man, the, you know, people don't have monopoly on violence, you know, power to the people. But governments require a monopoly on violence to be able to function because they have to, you know, assert their rule. And, you know, if you don't pay your taxes, they need to be able to send police to come get you. And if you break laws, they need to be able to send police to come get you. So this is important for the laws, you know, to be enforced and therefore, you know, even rights to be upheld. So anyway, point being, if you want to replace a system, you're going to have the system fighting back. And so it's going to get violent almost always. What makes a coup a little bit different is the violence is very brief because you replace the head and generally you have something like the army on your side and everyone at the end of the coup decides, well, we don't like this, but you know, we don't want to start a war to do anything about it, and we probably wouldn't win anyway. If they did start a war and try to do something about it, well, it's not a coup anymore. It's a revolution. And so as we bandy about the ideas of just trying to you know, either through small acts or through large acts, start to, you know, undermine our own system, we have to be wary. So when I say small acts, I mean stuff like, hey, you know what, the president should just go ahead and do it, right? Even though the president probably doesn't have the power to do it, it's really important that it get done, the president should just go ahead and do it. And um, we talked about this a lot, actually, at the, you know, Is America Reaching a Rubicon uh, episode of 2020, um, where we talked about, you know, the Lex Agraria and the sense that this was so important that it get done. It was so needful that it get done because you had all these essentially homeless, broke farmers from the Punic Wars, you know, this being in, in the Roman Republic, that, you know, we were willing to break some rules to do it. And there was a spiraling out of control that I broke rules to get done what I need to get done. So the other people are doing the same. And the U.S. is definitely doing that. So those are the little ways in which we're eroding away at our institutions and having less respect for the system. We're getting more a little bit extra legal, right? And therefore, we're kind of playing with the idea of revolution. But the other way that we're playing with the idea of revolution uh, is a little more explicitly, right? So for example, you know, the January 6th riot was an attempt at kind of a coup. It was at a revolution, right? Biden had been elected president using the system, and some people lied and said there was cheating, and 
uh, some of their followers just believe whatever they say, no matter how whimsical or fantastical. And they believe that uh, since the system was corrupted, it needed to be overthrown. So they're going to use, you know, they're going to storm the Capitol and try to keep Trump president. Um, it would have been a form of a revolution. And so not only have we been talking about revolution, but someone tried it. In the words of Mitt Romney, we are gathered today in this hour or something, you know, he says something like, we are gathered today in this hour because of the uh, fragile ego of a vain man. You know, in that day, the Senate warded off a revolution, you know, after, of course, the Capitol Police got involved. So let's take a look at some of these revolutions, because it's not just the right wing that indulges in revolutionary talk. You know, there are folks who, on the left, who like to blab about revolutions sometimes as well, and, and like to erode at our political institutions as well, as we've talked about on the show. This is not, you know, the idea of our institutions getting eroded at, and the idea of people thinking, well, we can break the rules because it's really important and the other side isn't playing ball. You know, it's definitely a two-sided thing. So what I want to do is actually break down different kinds of revolutions and kind of see how they turn out. And I'm going to totally cherry pick here, right? Uh, this is not a good, rigorous, peer-reviewed kind of show. I'm going to be a little bit general, but based on a broader understanding of history and my study of political science, I actually think it's it's a pretty reasonable position to take. So I'm going to say it's good enough for a podcast and uh, should at the very least get you thinking a little bit. So there's two kinds of revolutions. One of them is throwing off an external oppressor. We'll call these independence wars, right? But we still call them revolutions. The U.S. had a revolution. It was a war of independence, but it was a revolution. Spanish-American independence were a series of revolutions, um, stuff like that. I'll go through examples. But so we have, we have the kinds of revolutions where we throw off an external oppressor, an independence war. But then we have the kinds of revolutions where we force regime change in your own country, largely through extra-political or violent means. So these are the ones that I've been talking about us flirting with here in the United States. Mostly these are violent for reasons we talked about. Occasionally they're nonviolent. And sometimes, you know, often the external oppressor going off is nonviolent too. Sometimes external oppressors get kicked out nonviolently, such as in India, because it gets expensive or it gets, you know, politically painful. Uh, for the external oppressor to keep oppressing. Wars tend to do, you know, violence tends to do the same thing just through different means of making it too painful, too politically unpalatable, too expensive to hold on. So whether or not through, through violence, you know, we'll have external oppressors thrown off and for internal regime change, we'll either have coups or we'll have broader violence or sometimes we have nonviolent revolutions. You know, I think the early French Revolution being a decent example of this, although we'll see it, you know, obviously it doesn't end up being nonviolent. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And the case I want to make for these independence wars versus internal regime change revolutions as that the outcomes tend to be very different. 
And the outcomes for throwing off an outsider, an independence war, tend to work out pretty well. And the outcomes for forcing internal regime change tend to work out very, very, very badly. So we're going to restrain ourselves to revolutions where uh, they weren't just crushed, right? So it turns out if you go on Wikipedia and you search revolutions, you're going to see a lot of red. And the red means the revolution was crushed. And most of the time, most of the time, uh, revolutions fail. Just turns out the, you know, the regime that's in charge, they've, they've got a monopoly on violence, right? You know, they've got staying power for a reason. And so they have legitimacy with some groups. They're able to, you know, access resources. They're able to access manpower. They have logistical advantages. They just have sheer, you know, weapons advantages. Um, so very, very frequently, uh, these revolutions, whether they're of the first kind, that independence war, or the second kind, that internal regime change revolution, they just tend not to work. But the times that they do, when they are these internal regime change types, they tend to work out really badly. So let's go through some examples um, very briefly, and then we'll talk about why. So let's start with the U.S. Revolution, right? As I mentioned before, other than the slavery problem, it ended spectacularly well, right? And, you know, not everything was resolved. Still had to have a civil war about it later, but it tended to work out pretty well. And... You know, what does that mean? Well, you had a functioning government afterward. You had people buying in. You had a huge economic boom. I mean, all sorts of good things happened in the United States for the Americans, right? Certainly not for the people living west of the colonies. But for the Americans, things worked out very, very well. Uh, and a big part of it, in particular for Americans, was they already had local governments in place. So you had these governments that people were already bought into. You know, they were the 13 colonies that became the 13 states, right? They already had these systems that people were bought into. And it helped them win, too, because as much as they really struggled to muster resources, there was at least some way of organizing and some identity with, like, hey, we're Virginian, we're American. And that identity uh, worked out really well, and we'll talk about this more in a sec. Um, Spanish-American independence. So there's a whole series of independences here, but Simon Bolivar was obviously at the center of a lot of this. Again, Mike Duncan talks about this brilliantly. Spanish-American independence was about South America throwing off the Spanish. I mean, very much like the U.S. Revolution in a lot of ways, right? You had these folks that identified more and more as being American and less and less as being Spanish. And they decided to kick the kick the Spanish out, and the Spanish got kicked out. And they also had some local government um, strength that they were able to rely upon. Now, they ended up getting cut up into different countries. They still had these systems that were there on the ground run by Americans, you know, that Americans, when they decided to get rid of the Spanish, were able to use. One example I actually really love was, like, one of the few ever successful slave revolts, which was Haiti, right? Um, so unlike many slave revolts that failed, the Haitians were natives. And so when they got rid of their foreign oppressors, there were a lot of foreign oppressors there, and they fought bitterly to hang on. But there were just tons and tons of Haitians on the island. And so it turns out, you know, when you try to have a, you know, when you try to have a slave colony where the entire population or most of the population is enslaved, and even the ones who aren't really don't like that everyone else who's Haitian is enslaved, right? At some point, you're at risk of something going wrong because they just massively outnumber you. If Again, if you're the evil oppressor and enslaver in this case, you're massively outnumbered and at risk. And this is why, you know, for example, the New York slave revolt uh, or some of the southern slave revolts in the United States were in trouble because there just wasn't that size of that numerical difference in size. And, you know, and the people you're trying to revolt against didn't have anywhere to go. There was no home for them to go to. So they were fighting for their homes as well as their property. But the Haitians pulled it off and they started a country. Good for them. The Indian Revolution, one of those nonviolent ones, you know, 
They got rid of the British. Um, they established India. Now, of course, the British had created some, you know, some systems on the ground that were uh, often run at the lower levels by Indians, even though the Indians made it very little to the top of the governance system. And this was a reason that the revolution happened. You know, you had a lot of ability for, you know, the Indians to organize. And, you know, and of course, they got rid of the Brits. Things, again, ended pretty well. You know, I'm going to make the case that the breakup of British India into Indian Pakistan, one of the things that was tough about that was it was almost a separate revolution. It just came right on the heels of the first. It was one where, you know, you had this issue where since you didn't have this Leviathan pinning you down, the Hindus and Muslims had to try to figure out what the heck to do now. That didn't end so well in in large part just because, uh, you know, the lines were not drawn as well as they could have been. You know, you didn't have these nationalistic lines the way and you didn't have this unified identity the way that that a lot of these other revolutions did. So they had to have a second phase. So there were a lot of ugly parts of the Indian Revolution. And some people might tell me it didn't work out so well. But it didn't work out as badly as a lot of the ones we're going to be looking at here. We can also look at, like, the Greek and Balkan revolutions, the revolutions against the Ottomans, right, who were, again, foreign oppressors. The Greeks, the Balkans, they chucked them out. And generally, a lot of the nationalist revolutions of the 19th century, you know, the ones that won, won. The ones that didn't win, well, you don't know them so well because they're not nations right now. But those nationalist revolutions tended to work out pretty well. Why? Because you had these external oppressors that you were chucking off, and they could go home. And then, you know, generally the anti-colonial revolutions worked out okay, right? You had you had functioning governments of some sort afterward that, you know, where people were generally bought into those governments and they weren't horror shows. So why does kicking people out work so well? You're using tribalism to your advantage. That's a big part of it. There's a big second bit and we'll get into that. But you're using tribalism to your advantage. So you're able to unite people under an identity Right. That's why many of these revolutions are just nationalist revolutions. They're independence revolutions. Right. So you have a tribal identity of who you are. We're a Greek. We are Indian. We are Italian. And once you have that idea of who you are, you now know who the outsider is. And they're the ones in charge. Right. And you can get rid of them. Right. So everyone's you're able to largely unite your population, have a united group. The out group, the bad tribe, is a, usually a minority of people. They mostly live somewhere else. They speak a different language. They're easy to point out and you want to get rid of them. And then once it's over, they can leave and they do. Right. The Brits went home. The French went home. The Habsburgs, you know, the Austrians went home, etc., etc., etc. Right. And so like, great, you're done. And now it's our people and we have traditions. We have, you know, we have a shared language. Right. We want to work together. Boom. So things are very different when you're looking for internal regime change. Right. As much as the Marxists would like to make a case that. You know, you have this like huge swath of 99% or so of the population who are like all, you know, all on the same side, or at least should be, right? Should be on the same side. And they're just getting rid of this like tiny little bit of the 1% or whatever, right? Like we hear some of that today, right? Like, they, oh, it's only the billionaires, right? I, everything that we want in the progressive agenda, it's, it's good for everyone but the billionaires. Well, clearly not everyone agrees, right? Because it's not only the billionaires that are against it. Otherwise, you know, Bernie Sanders types would flood Congress. You know, so as much as Marxists would like to have this idea that these revolutions are vast, vast, vast majorities of the population who are like representing this united group, it never works out that way, does it? Right. So if we look at the Ruf- Russian Revolution first, it was a brutal civil war that ended in a brutal dictatorship. Right. There's like no way to describe communist Russia other than awful, just awful. 
And, you know, and as much as they had fairly popular support in some ways, right, the Bolsheviks seemed to, to enjoy popular support at some point. May have, you know, some of it was temporary, right? They were a tiny minority party for a while. But then World War One, they kind of, the uh, French Republican government was, or kind of Republican government, French, excuse me, Russian, was so effed up in how they're handling the war that they got this temporary popularity. I mean, point being, the way it ended was Lenin and then Stalin. It wasn't good. Tens of millions of people were killed, murdered by this regime. Murdered. Right? Not even war, just murder. Chinese Revolution, same way. Right? It ended with Mao. It ended with, first, the five-year plan and the Great Leap Forward, right? where tens of millions of people died of starvation. And it then ended with the Cultural Revolution, where millions and millions more died and were murdered and were sent to re-education camps. You know? And China is still a brutal, repressive state to this day. And I would make a case that the closest thing, you know, the Chinese are the closest thing to the Nazis in terms of how they treat their own nation, and in particular the ethnic minorities of their nation, but also the secret police and all that junk. The closest thing to the Nazi regime that we've seen since the Nazi regime. The French Revolution, right? I, God, I keep hearing people romanticize the French Revolution. And I think every, I would hope everyone who romanticizes the French Revolution hasn't read about the French Revolution. It was awful, right? Again, there's this like weird Marxist fantasy that like the people that got beheaded were just rich people. That's just not true, right? The guillotine got everyone. The guillotine, you know, this is the revolution that ate its own children, right? Everyone was getting guillotined. And it was, you know, this was the it was the white terror for a reason. It was terrorizing everybody, not just rich people. And, you know, how did it end? Well, it ended with Napoleon taking over. Why? Because people got tired of it and they wanted some strong man to take over, right? They wanted someone who could, like, bring, restore order and keep them safe. It was anarchy. It was a, kind of a mix of anarchy and, and dictatorship for a while. And then they were just like, F it, we'll just go full dictatorship, right? Someone who can get a lid on things. Same with the Roman Republican Revolution, Right. So, the you know, as again, as we talked about in America's Rubicon, the Roman Revolution was kind of this like chipping away, chipping away because there were problems that were going unsolved, rising inequality and people starting to mess with most myorum, the way things are done. Right. Their kind of version of a constitution because it felt so important to be able to make progress. And then it descended into a series of civil wars. And because it got so violent and so anarchical that when Caesar said, look, I'm just going to march on everything and take over here. And was a great dictator for life. Thank you. Right. And then it ended with an imperium, which like, you know, if you're a if you've just got a big hard on for the Romans, you're like, well, that was great. It was the Roman Imperium. But like it was a, it, the Republic ended. Right. It just became, you know, and the Imperium was ugly in a lot of ways. It certainly wasn't like a wonderful kind of liberal state. It wasn't a place where people had rights and, you know, and a say in how their government went. I mean, if you look at the English Revolution. Right. It got kicked back. Right. Oliver Cromwell kind of like went crazy trying to oppress monarchical you know, pro-monarchy sentiment. And then the monarchy came back anyway. In the French Revolution, the monarchy ended up coming back twice, right? And only got kicked out much later. The Cuban Revolution still sucks, right? Again, as as much as there's some, like, weird propaganda otherwise, right? Cuba's really messed up. Um, every now and then, people freak out because they don't have any rights. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that they can't afford. And, you know, generally they don't, you know, like, it's the biggest part is they have no rights. There are secret police everywhere. You know, they don't get to vote. It's a one-party state. And then, you know, every time they make a sink about it, they get brutally put down. Doesn't sound great to me. And then the Iranian Revolution, right, is another great example. It, you know, you see these, like, pictures of Iran before the revolution, and it looked nice. And... 
you know, and it became what is essentially not quite a one-party state, but a state with, you know, rigged elections. The Russians still have rigged elections. You know, rigged elections, very, very limited rights, very oppressed rights. And, you know, this sense that, well, not even a sense, but this reality where people who don't, you know, who the regime doesn't like, they disappear, right? They get taken care of. It's a bad place to live. And so why do these internal regime change revolutions tend to lead to brutal dictatorships and lots of violence and anarchy, you know, you know, anarchy followed by dictatorships in a way that these independence wars don't. Well, it's because you actually got the opposite, you know, tribalism works against you. So just as a reminder, when you're kicking people out, right, external people out, tribalism's working for you. You're united against an outsider. And once it's over, they leave. Whereas in regime change, internal regime change, tribalism works against you. Your people are divided because you're using the violence to create winners and losers, right? You've got people who like the current system. That's why it's there, right? Systems like contrary to, again, Marxist belief, and I'm going after the Marxists because the Marxists are revolutionaries, right? It's a revolutionary ideology, fundamentally, in a way that most other ideologies are not. Liberalism isn't, fascism isn't, whatever. Marxism is, and Marxism, you know, invades a lot of, you know, gets into a lot of thinking, you know, beyond just communism. Um, there's a lot of Marxist thought out there. You know, so, so your people are divided because you have people that liked the old regime and want to keep the old regime. And they're just afraid, you know, they're just afraid of the world being turned upside down, right? It's not just the ultra-rich. It's your professionals. It's your, you know, people who even own a small amount of property, factory owners. But, but again, like the professional class tends to side against a lot of these revolutions because they've got a stake in things, even if the system's not perfect. They want more gradual change. They want, you know, they want reform, not revolution. Uh, so even if people want reform, they tend not to want much in the way of a revolution, uh, certainly not a violent one, because violence is just bad for most people most of the time. The disruption is bad for most people most of the time. So anyway, you have this division you create. Um, and so you have people who are trying to, you know, hold on to the old way. Or even if they're not trying to hold on to the old way, the only thing revolutionaries tend to agree on, and this, if you get into revolutions, you see this, they only agree on that they want things to be different, right? So the Russian Revolution, for example, or the French Revolution, a big part of the problem is you had everyone agree, like, okay, let's get rid of the czar, let's get rid of the king. Okay, now what? Well, now we're all divided suddenly, and there's this, like, power vacuum, and we're all scrambling to try to get our way imposed on here, our way into the Constitution, our way into the system, um, so that we can get an advantage long, 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 long term, because we're deciding what a new system is going to be. So tons of division, tons and tons and tons of division, fundamentally. And you see it over and over and over again in revolutions where you don't just have instant repression, right? You have these revolutions where you use violence to get rid of the old system, and then you try to like sort out who's going to be in charge after that. It's really hard. And so you have this kind of anarchic uh, or highly divided, fractured, factionalist thing that's going on. And then once it's kind of quote-unquote over, well, the defeated folks, they stick around. And everyone who, even if they weren't in charge initially, if their way of getting things done or their vision for the future didn't get implemented, they're still there. And we just used violence to get things done. And why do I have to accept the new way of doing things again? And so a great example here, for example, is the Iraq War and the Bath Party, right? The Americans tried to impose a revolution from the outside. Right? The Americans showed up and said, we're going we're gonna to stage a revolution here. We're just going to like cut the head off the top, and we'll have a democracy and everything will be great, right? And they even had a ton of power, you know, a ton of physical power to try to get it done and a ton of money to try to get it done. And it still didn't work because you had these losers left over, one, the, the Bath Party, and then two, you had people who wanted to impose their way of doing things, which wasn't exactly democratic. And a lot of it was, you know, certain highly religious Shiites backed by the Iranians, right? So you created a power vacuum 
And so when you're trying to force regime change internally, any fantasy you have that the people are with you is just that. It is a fantasy, right? Your particular way of getting things done, even if most people want the old system out, it's very unlikely most people want exactly your way of doing things. This is where you really start to run into trouble because there's a whole second bit of this here and it's called legitimacy, right? We've talked about this big idea before. It's like kind of vague. It's hard to measure how much legitimacy a government has, but it's really, really, really important because if you don't have legitimacy, you're effed, right? So I'll go back to an example I used earlier. The reason laws work as much as monopoly on violence uh, or monopoly of violence is important to enforcing laws. The reason the laws, a peaceful society exists isn't for the most part, you know, at least in like, say, the United States or like, the, you know, these other liberal democracies with free societies, the reason you, you have a peaceful working society is because most people want to follow the laws. Most people believe in following the laws, right? They're bought in and they bought in enough to the system that they want to follow the laws to preserve peace in society, even if they don't agree with all of them, because they want a harmonious society, because they believe in the way that they're brought about, right? And so... You can't, like, for the most part, you can't have a free society and not have a lot of legitimacy. You need people to buy in. You need people to come and vote and then agree on whatever the outcome is and not use violence when they happen to lose, right? They have to say, like, okay, my guy didn't win, but I believe in this system, and so I'm going to abide, abide by the outcome and stay bought in, right? And you can see in the United States that legitimacy is being eroded away because people decided to storm the Capitol when they didn't get their way. And, like... You know, do they really believe that it was stolen? I don't know, right? It seems pretty far-fetched, but they're very happy to believe whatever they're told about it being stolen because they're really, really, really unhappy with the outcome because they don't, you know, they're not into legitimacy. So the point is, when you have an internal revolution, you're using violence not just against the current system, but if, at the very idea of legitimacy of any given system. Why? Because... Take the opposite of what we just talked about. With legitimacy, people are bought in. They believe in the system, right? So, for example, if you believe in the, the legitimacy of the electoral system, you say, well, whoever wins that system is president. I believe they are president, right? You're bought in. What if you say, well, look, I don't care. They lost the, they lost the vote, and I'm going to use violence uh, because I didn't get my way. Then you don't have legitimacy. And so... What's happening is when you say, well, look, we're just going to use violence to get our way, what you're doing is you're setting a precedent. If I don't like it, I can use violence to change it, right? If you're trying to get rid of a king, right, you say, well, look, the way that we're establishing as a society that things get done around here is you use violence if you don't like it. And so it's very hard to then just say, okay, 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 now that we've used violence to get rid of this king, we're all going to stop using violence, okay? We're going to agree to doing things this particular way. We're going to have this particular constitution with this particular makeup, you know, of how, you know, representatives are distributed and this group of people can vote, right? You have to get down to particulars, right? Revolutionaries forget that. This is one of the things that's like really mixing, missing in say, you know, all the Marxist literature I've led. They love this like highfalutin way of talking about like, oh, as soon as we get rid of the thing up top, everything will be fine, right? Well, that's clearly not true. They miss a lot of the details and the devil is there because you then have to get people to buy into a brand new system that has a lot of particulars that can't be perfect. Or at least it has to create some winners and losers. And so any regime or system of government relies on this legitimacy. And building that legitimacy is hard. Lots of people study this. And so what does legitimacy depend on? It tends to depend on traditions. Um, taught and shared belief systems, right? So we get taught 
about how the U.S. system works and why it works the way it does. Even if there's some weird clunky bits about it I don't like, such as the, you know, like, I don't actually particularly like the Electoral College. I think it's dumb, right? But I respect its outcomes, and I understand that there's a way to try to change it if you can get enough people on board. Now, I also think it takes too many people on board to be able to change it, right? I wish reform were easier, but I'm, it's still legitimate to me because I'm not willing to use violence to get rid of it. And I don't just go, well, because I don't love the way, you know, because I think there could be a better way of coming up with who's president. The person who became president through that means is not president. I'm just going, no, 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 they're clearly president, right? There's also propaganda, right? We get propagandized about, you know, the American myth a lot and why it's such a kick-ass place to be um, and why our system is so cool. Right. And perhaps most importantly, enough of a track record that people feel that they are they have some reasonable nonviolent means of getting their needs met through the system at some reasonable amount of time. Right. That things can change, that you can solve problems. You need that. Right. And so new regimes have none of this. They have absolutely none of this. And so if people aren't getting what they want, why do they have to buy in? Right. We just got rid of the idea that you have to buy in. We just use violence because we didn't buy in. And so why do I have to buy into this? Why do I have to accept how it turns out if I don't like it? So you end up reverting to this like raw power. Um, you know, if you, so this is why it's so common to see these revolutions end in dictatorships. Now let's go back to our example again. Russian Revolution, brutal dictatorship. French Revolution, Napoleon, brutal dictatorship. And then the king. Chinese Revolution, brutal dictatorship. English Revolution, Cromwell became kind of a dictator. Then the king came back. Cuban Revolution, brutal dictatorship. Iranian Revolution, brutal dictatorship. Roman Revolution, brutal dictatorship. Why? Because you don't have legitimacy. And we don't have legitimacy. Remember we talked about how people buy in and they mostly follow the law because like, you know, they love their country and they just want to do the right thing and they want to get along and they believe in this system, the society that they're part of, social contract, all that stuff. You don't have that. So how do you hold it down? Raw power, violence, secret police, fear. You don't have unity. You have a divided population. You have people who want the old thing back. You have people who want something different entirely. You have people that aren't bought in. So you have to resort to violence. You have to purge the people who got kicked out, right? Because if we have those, you know, we look back at those revolutions of independence, the people who lose, they leave. They have a home they can go to. What happens to the people who lose in this system? Well, they're just screwed, right? And they're often really scared of being purged because they know the whole game theory of it. The game theory is to purge them. And so they will resist it. And then they end up getting purged. This is the whole security spiral in foreign policy. They know the game theory is to purge them because they're too much of a threat, right? It's why you have to kill the king, right? It's why the king is like, is doomed in a revolution. You have to kill them because they're going to be a rallying cry for the monarchists, Right? It's why you had to chop Louis' head off. It's why the czar, the czar's, the czar's entire family was murdered. Right, Anastasia and all that. It's why they were murdered because you need to get rid of this um, rallying cry for monarchists. Right? If you've read Machiavelli's Prince, there's a reason why. So when you're unable to actually either brutally suppress or destroy your opposition, you might end up losing the old revolution and the old regime comes back pretty quickly. So the English Revolution then happened. And there were just too many monarchists left. So they said, no, we're getting the king back. Boop, king's back. Or you have this ongoing violent anarchy where everyone's getting beheaded, including the children of the revolution, until a straw man comes in and restores order. And people are generally okay with this at that point. Think the French and the Roman Republic revolutions. I mean, think the Nazi regime coming to power, right? You had a ton of street violence going on where people's daily lives were getting disrupted. 
This is something that I think a lot of the the political ideologues of our nation are missing. They get these like they get these people who are really angry about stuff like, you know, such as transgender stuff, right? They get people who are like really 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 upset about that one way or the other. And they forget that like most people most of the time are just trying to get by. And and so when you have a bunch of street violence, when you have this uncertainty, when people can't start and run businesses, when you have anarchy, and someone shows up and says, look, I'm just going to put a lid on things, okay? I'm going to restore order. A lot of people are like, I'm into that. I'll buy into that. Screw your ideology. I just want peace. So therefore, what do you have to do to win your revolution at the end, right? After you've won your revolution, how do you keep winning your revolution? Through power, through oppression. Right. Especially if your revolution is ideological. Right. Because ideological revolutions cannot allow for opposition. That's the whole point. Right. If you allow for opposition, you've lost the revolution that you just won because you're just going to get voted out at some point. Right. So especially if you're a Marxist or a whateverist. Right. You win a revolution. You almost have no choice because it turns out, you know, belies the whole point that everyone's, you know, everyone's behind you. Everyone's a Bolshevik. Because if you weren't worried about people voting you right back out. You wouldn't have become a dictatorship, but you did. And it was the only way to be successful was to form a dictatorship and use raw power because tribalism is working against you because you can't get everyone united. And so, reconsider a moment. We must be wary in our own democracies of escalating rhetoric and actions that chip away at the legitimacy of the liberal system. Liberal systems are designed to solve problems through a process, right? And it is often frustrating. It's often slow. It's a pain in the butt, right? Keeping liberal systems going is tough. What kind of government do we have? A republic, if you can keep it. But when you eschew that process and, and cut corners to get what you need, you erode that legitimacy. And when that legitimacy starts to erode, that's how revolutions begin. We didn't even talk about that. But the Russian, French, Chinese, English, Cuban, Iranian, Roman revolutions, they all came after a breakdown of legitimacy of the old system, in large part because the old system wasn't giving people what they needed. The Russian Revolution happened because, one, people were very hungry, and two, they were losing the war, and they were just incompetent. And the Tsar was incompetent. And the French Revolution was governing incompetently, and there's no way to change the person in charge. Right? You just had to wait for them to die or behead them. Chinese Revolution. Uh, incompetence largely running, running the war. Right, You had actually two revolutions. You had the Republican Revolution, which actually looked super cool, but then they started losing the war. So maybe that would have been an exception to my rule had the war not shown up. I don't know. But they quickly weren't a republic anymore. Right, They became the Kuomintang, which was – so maybe not because the Kuomintang had become a bit of a dictatorship of its own. Because, again, as soon as you get rid of the – the emperor? Wow, why do we have to put up with this republic? Why not communism? English Revolution, it was incompetence. Cuban Revolution, incompetence. Iranian Revolution, uh, it was a foreign puppet. Roman Revolution, incompetence. Inability to solve problems, right? And so what happens is you, you, know, you need reform to be able to solve these problems. And are we doomed, right? If we can't reform, like, is it that our system is so rigid that we can't reform it fast enough to solve problems and therefore it's kind of doomed to its legitimacy being eroded? Are we doomed to a revolution here in the United States? I hope not because they tend to end badly. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 